Um, okay, so a couple things. First of all, welcome, welcome back uh, to our Tough Stuff series where we're trying to handle things that are directly affecting you guys. Um, we've done abortion, we've done transgender issue, we've done same-sex marriage, last week was social media, and this week is race relations, um, or, or race and the Christian. What is the Christian's role in, in kind of this knee-jerk, fiery culture that we're in right now? How do you, uh, how do you become a, an agent of reconciliation with race? And so every week, we try to recommend a book, try to recommend something that you guys can put in your hands after we're, after, after we're gone, that's a little, after this service is over. Um, and so that, that's kind of something that we want to recommend to you guys and we want to put in your hands. This one is a book called Bloodlines by a guy named John Piper. Uh, Piper is one of my favorite guys. Um, he's super old now. He's almost, I think he's almost 70, but when he was much younger uh, and raised in North Carolina, he actually grew up a racist. Um, and so through God's word, God kind of melted that stone part of his heart and changed how he saw things. And so this book is kind of about that. And then he takes you through the texts in the Bible that, that, really, um, that really shook him and changed his heart. And so it's just a really good place to start. I highly recommend that to you. And again, at the end of this series, we'll have some copies of some of these different books for you guys to take home because we don't want you guys to leave empty-handed. Um, so tonight, we are talking about race relations. But before we get into race relations, we have to talk about something that is so key to race relations, and I know it's exactly what you think of every time you think of race relations. Let's talk about polygamy, okay? Let's talk about polygamy real quick. What does polygamy have to do with race relations in America in the 21st century? You will soon find out. This is one of the things that you get hit with a lot, um, either on campus or on the news when it's this like smart guy arguing with this other smart guy. One of the reasons they try to um, get rid of the Bible is, and they'll say this, the Bible encourages polygamy. There are tons of people in the Old Testament who have multiple wives. There just are, which is what polygamy is, being married to multiple people at the same time. Um, and it was mostly men in the Old Testament. I'm sorry, ladies. I'm sorry they wouldn't let you commit polygamy in the Old Testament. I'm sorry that's so unfair. I know. But um, in the Old Testament, all these guys had different wives. And so people will look at that and they'll say, the Bible encourages polygamy. Look at this. But here's the thing. If I'm trying to sell you, right, if I'm trying to encourage something to you, if I'm trying to sell you a vacuum cleaner, I'm going to mention all the positive things that this vacuum does how well it cleans, how compact it is, how light it is. I'm not going to mention any of the negatives if I'm trying to sell you something. I'm not going to mention the fact that it's really not as, heavy, as, as light as it appears or that the, the dust bag bursts or that it sticks to the carpet. I'm not going to mention any of the negatives if I'm trying to sell you something. Listen to all the negative results from polygamy in the Bible, or at least some of them. Absalom tries to kill David. Sarah is beating Hagar within an inch of her life. Jacob's sons hate Joseph and live such sinful lives. Solomon starts out so well and finishes so poorly. And then the constant ruin of the kings of Israel and Judah. What is in common with all of those? All of the fathers in these stories committed polygamy. And the long-term damage from their actions was catastrophic. So we learned two things here. One, the Bible is not in favor of polygamy. It's one of the most convincing indictments against 
polygamy. The Bible says, look at the results of polygamy. If you were trying to encourage polygamy in the Bible, you wouldn't show Jacob's kids trying to kill the youngest one of the kids. They would have their own little deal on TLC, and everybody would love them, and a house that's way too big, and they would, they would, everybody would love it. The Bible would try to sell it. But the Bible doesn't show polygamy like that. It shows the negative results. So that's the first thing we learned. But number two, and here, here we go. We learned this. Sin has ripple effects. Absalom was David's son. He was the son of David and his wife, Makah. Amnon was the son of David and his wife, Ahinom. So was Tamar. Solomon was Bathsheba's kid from David. Amnon rapes his sister Tamar. Absalom kills Amnon for it and then later tries to kill his father, David. Look at what David's polygamy has brought on him. Each one of these people had a different mother. The chaos that has ensued in David's family is a direct result of the chaos that ensued in his love life before these kids were born. Of course, Joseph's brothers all hated each other, and they hated him most of all. There's 13 of them, and they're from four different women. Imagine the struggle for attention daily. They didn't, they didn't ask for this. But Jacob's polygamy has affected his children. His sin has had ripple effects. His sin affects others who had no part in that original sin. You tracking with me so far? One of the biggest complaints, and please know before we get into this discussion on race that this is something that, that I have taken a lot of time and, and am semi-nervous about just because we're going to say some stuff that it's like, whoa, okay, so just kind of hang with me. Be glad to talk with you after, okay? One of the biggest complaints that I hear and that I used to, to give all the time, is this. Remember, sin has ripple effects. We didn't enslave this group of people. We weren't around in the 60s. I wasn't even born in the 60s. I didn't do this. So why is this group of people mad at us when we weren't even there? When you throw a rock into the middle of a lake... The ripples of that rock, the ripples of that moment, are going to travel across the lake and hit the rocks on the shore. The rocks that had nothing to do with what happened over there. And the rocks on the shore are going to look at the ripples and be like, why are you hitting us? We didn't do anything. No, you didn't. Not at all. But something of great impact happened back there. And its ripple effects are hitting us right now. When one country takes citizens of another country and puts them to work in a land that is not their own, and please, we can do it, but please don't talk to me at the end about, well, slaves didn't really have it. Yes, one, yes, they did. And two, it doesn't matter if their conditions were in the Ritz-Carlton they don't live here. When one country takes citizens of another country and puts them to work in a land that they don't know, 
And then both groups have their descendants living together hundreds of years later. Of course there's going to be unrest. Of course there's going to be a lack of cohesion. Of course there's going to be anger and bitterness and unfairness coming from both sides. Because you've brought a group of imperfect people against their will to work for another group of imperfect people. And now, hundreds of years later, we're both still imperfect and we're both still here. All countries, all nationalities, slavery, sexual oppression, economic unrest, all people groups face the consequences of their father's sins. And we are no different. Sin has ripple effects. And we're the rocks on the shore. Born taking responsibility for a sin that we did not commit, but there's a whole other group of people whose ancestors never had their day in court. And that's not fair either. Maybe your ancestors weren't racist, but they lived in neighborhoods with people who were. Maybe your ancestors were not treated prejudicially, but they knew people who were. Maybe, maybe people that you know didn't start out racist, but they were pulled into it because of their sinful hearts. Or maybe, and here we go, maybe you know those who were not treated unfairly, but they knew people who were and they wanted in on it. They wanted to be a part of that movement because their sin saw the opportunity in this movement. It's a melting pot of sin. Sin is the issue. A great sin that happened in the Garden of Eden has cursed all of us. And one cursed group sinned greatly and brought another cursed group against their will. And the world exploded. But there is a God who's covered the sin of Adam and Eve. And later, He sent His Son to pay for this great sin. So that they could be reconciled through him. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave, a, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself through not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making His appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See this. The world was already so split long before the Civil War or the 1960s. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to look at Genesis 11, which is the Sunday school classic, the Tower of Babel. So let's check this out for a second. Genesis 11, and I'm going to kind of skip around a little bit, okay? So Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. So the whole earth has one language and the same words. Verse 4. Then they said, Come, 
Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top all the way to heaven. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. The, verse 8. The Lord, seeing their pride, dispersed them from there to all over the face of the earth. And they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. So the problem from the very beginning is pride. This is where Babel is where the different cultures come from. Babel is where the different races come from, all from Babel. But notice, there is no sinless group here. Verse 1 says, the whole earth. So all everybody is here together. Verse 4, they said. So this is all the peoples of the earth, not just a specific group of sinful people. All the peoples of the earth at this time are in unison in their pride, united in their pride. The whole people group is full of pride. And then God splits them into different languages. And so they take their pride, although it sounds different now to each person, they're taking their pride to separate places and locations. They're split into smaller prideful factions. The first thing that we learn from this is that there are no innocent people groups according to the Bible. Now let me explain what I mean. All the groups that were split at Babel were full of pride. Think about the family traditions that you have, right? The lame ones, the fun ones, the ones that you hate and the ones that you love. Of all the cultural, racial, family traditions that have carried through the ages, pride is the strongest of all these traditions. <laughs> pride, ironically, is the great commonality that we all have. And this one thing that we have in common is the very thing that divides us. I, there are no innocent people groups. I don't know how many, and it's usually white people, it's not always, I don't know how many white, older people have told me that America is the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem was torn down in the Bible more times than I am even aware of. And it was because of the pride of the people. Ezekiel 5, 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of all nations with all the other countries around her. Is that not what people think of America so often? And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the other nations and against my statutes more than all the countries around her. For they have rejected my rules and they have not walked in my statutes. Verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you are more unruly than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules, verse 8, Therefore, behold, I am against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. The, the American, and I'm one of them, the American suburban middle class majority is not some superior race. But that has been the curtain call in our country for so long. And we are just now trying to crawl out of it. But the Bible knew this thousands of years ago. 
This group is not pure. But neither is the group that has suffered. And I need to be careful here because I'm not saying, see, they got slavery, it's what they deserve. You see, prejudice is what they deserve. Not, not by any means am I saying that. People of all age, race, gender are made in the image of God. It was called the Imago Dei. And to disrespect them by enslaving them or by sexually abusing women or by overlooking certain other people groups is a great sin that should never be tolerated and that we will reap the sickening results of for the remainder of our time as a nation. But when something bad happens to you, prejudice, unfair treatment, second looks at a grocery store, which still happens, that suffering, okay, tune in, that suffering, while perverted and disgusting, does not grant you automatic access into heaven. The Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That word all in Greek, it actually means all. Those who have suffered and those who are comfortable. Those who are from here and those who are forced to come here. All have been cursed by the sin of Adam and Eve. The problem, and you see this in culture all the time, you see it in social media and in documentaries, the problem with labeling majorities as pure saviors and minorities as innocent lambs is that by doing so, we jump over what the Bible first says about them. Sinners separated from God. By thinking that the white churchgoer, the, the, the predominant view in our culture is that the white churchgoer from the 50s automatically gets into heaven. And when you think that, you cut them off from the true gospel. And while acknowledging the untold suffering of minorities in our country, we cannot forget that while this suffering certainly makes them victims in need of help, it does not alleviate their need of Jesus' redeeming blood. Suffering and comfort, neither of those is a substitute for repentance. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Here we go. From every nation, from every tribe and people and language was standing before the Lamb in His throne. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Listen to what they say in verse 10. And crying out with a loud voice, they said, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So there's this new group in Revelation, and they come from different places and speak in different tongues. But the one thing that they all have in common is no longer their pride. It's Jesus. He has redeemed the garden. He has redeemed Babel for them. And you can't say, 
Look, they're colorblind now. Don't say that you're colorblind. The Bible clearly says they are distinct. And you can't say there's only one race, the human race. The Bible, again, clearly shows that they're distinct. But they are not united around their distinctness. They are united around the Lamb of God. They are united in repentance. Galatians 3, 26-28. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is now neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Jesus. Now, are there female Christians? Yes. Are there male Christians, Korean Christians, black Christians, white Christians? Yes. They are distinct. But Paul's point is they are no longer defined by their distinctness. Why is race the most important thing in your life when race is not what gets you in? Faith does. Though though they are the most diverse group of any group in the history of the universe, the church of Jesus Christ is not marked by diversity. It's marked by repentance. This true repentance is the only seed that allows true diversity to grow. In light of true repentance, racism has no room to grow. One, because it's sinful, but two, because race is no longer the determining factor. The pride and power that can come sinfully from race is cut off in light of God's love that leads to repentance. Martin Luther King is the one who said it's probably a good idea to judge someone based on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And this has to begin in our own hearts. We are not members of Christ's body because we're a certain color. We are not members of Christ's bride just because we suffer. We are counted as His only when we count Him as being more valuable than all else. And when this happens in your heart, you'll begin to understand the correct way to see people. You'll see through different lenses. You'll see color more clearly and more beautifully defined than ever before. But it'll fade into the background as you get a clearer picture of people's hearts. So let's pray together.